You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Your Brain on Facts book, a smart book with a sensual cover. What does that even mean? You'll have to get a copy to find out. And Moxie LaBouche voiceovers. Get my beautiful mellifluous NPR voice saying whatever you want within reason at half off the usual rate. Email contact at moxielabouche.com. is foremost on people's minds these days. Thanks to the virus and everyone promises to lose weight day, or New Year's as some call it, maybe you're focusing on your health overall, being careful of what you put in your body, scouring food labels in the backs of shampoo bottles for ingredients you can't pronounce. I don't want to dissuade you from the practice, but right now, no matter how careful you've been, your body contains things like formaldehyde, hydrogen peroxide, and acetone. And it's all by design. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. A quick heads up as to the content of today's episode. We are getting medical, and that includes the naughty bits and fetal development. So if you haven't had the talk with your kids, your car ride is about to get awkward. Today's topic was voted on by the supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, and all membership levels get to vote on one topic per month. Those listeners who are still reeling from the description of the Italian maggot cheese from the Greatest Hits rerun of You Gonna Eat That can blame the 50-plus members of the Patreon for today's topic. But hey, you're learning, and isn't that the most important thing? Today we are going to talk about things your body does, or makes, that you might not even know about. Let's start with my namesake body part, the mouth. That's what la bouche means in French. At the back of your mouth, your throat is flanked by two guards called tonsils. Their job is the immune system's first line of defense against bacteria and viruses that enter your mouth. They do this by gathering bacteria-laden gunk in their various folds and creases. It's like Bastion trying to get past the Sphinx Gate in the never-ending story. Except not like that at all, actually. Normally, the tonsils just quietly go about their business. But sometimes, they catch too much gunk. What happens to a surplus of food particles and other debris that gets packed into the small pockets of tonsil flesh? It forms tonsil stones. Let me not drop you straight in the deep end like that. First, let's talk about some stones you might be more familiar with, and might have right now. Gallstones and kidney stones. Gallstones are fairly common, but unless you've treated them or had them, few people know what they actually are, or even what the gallbladder is. The gallbladder is a storage organ connected to the liver by a network of bile ducts. It produces bile to absorb the fats in our diet. When the gallbladder isn't on active duty, such as when you're fasting, bile isn't released and fills the gallbladder. When you eat, the bowel sends a signal to the gallbladder that it's time to send in the bile. But if something messes up that system, like high cholesterol, extended fasting, pregnancy, or just losing the genetic dice throw, the gallbladder might not empty often enough, or completely enough, 
and Bob's your uncle, you've got gallstones. And this isn't a bolt from the blue situation. About 20% of people will develop gallstones at some point in their life. Look at the person to your left and the person to your right, and then at two different people. One of the five of you will develop gallstones. But don't fret, only about 20% of those people who have them will actually develop symptoms. Small stones work their way down the bile ducts into the intestines and... Away they go. Of course, we as a people are getting fatter by the day, so the number of sufferers is increasing, and the average age of sufferers is decreasing. Gallstones hunt in packs, so if you have them, you probably have plural. And they can seriously your up. Common complaints include abdominal pain, back pain, chest pain that feels like a heart attack, vomiting, and loose, greasy, stinky poops. Because why not? They can also exacerbate existing conditions and even cause strokes. But what they can't do, no matter what your grand said, is make you more likely to get kidney stones. Kidney stones and gallstones live in the same building, but they don't even pass in the hall. Gallstones are made of unprocessed cholesterol, while kidney stones are made of calcium and salts. A predisposition, certain medications, not drinking enough water, or a diet high in protein and sodium are among the risk factors that can get you into trouble. Calcium is a mineral, so this bodily stone is quintessentially lithic, very stone-like. As long as the stone is small or stays in the kidney, you won't feel it. But if it finds its way into the ureter, the tube connecting the kidney to the bladder, you're going to have a bad time. It now has to work its way all the way out. And don't be picturing smooth river rocks or the gravel from your driveway. Calcium is a mineral, and kidney stones are crystals. Do you know what a fractal is? It's one of those geometric pictures where you can zoom in on an endlessly repeating pattern. They're like that, but all straight lines and corners. If you've never looked at things I've put in the show notes before, today is the day. Because I had no idea how absolutely satanic these things are. No wonder everyone says it hurts worse than childbirth. Oh, and they can block up your urine, so that's fun. Speaking of fun, one surprising way to pass a kidney stone is to ride on a roller coaster. Researchers found that riding the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad roller coaster at Disney World could help ease the passage of small kidney stones. A few patients reported passing small stones after going on the ride. And since human trials to look for a connection would be difficult to organize, researchers built a 3D model of a kidney, complete with stones of different sizes, hid it in a backpack, and went on the ride 20 times. No word in the article as to whether or not they had a fast pass or had to stand in line each time. They found that where you sit improves the efficacy of the Big Thunder Mountain as a medical device. When the researchers sat at the front, the stones only passed 17% of the time. But sitting in the last car saw stones passing 64% of the time. Compared to all that, tonsil stones should be a breeze. I mean, if you don't notice something in your mouth and throat, as opposed to the nebulous mush that is our internal organs, how bad can it be? 
The morbidly curious among us may have watched videos online of tonsil stone extractions, I assume while waiting for a new episode of Dr. Pimple Popper. Tonsil stones are smelly little white globs of no thank you that build up in the crypts of the tonsils. In addition to acting as bacterial bouncers with their mucousy coating, your tonsils produce white blood cells and antibodies to help prevent infections. If particles of food and spent white blood cells build up in the crypt and pack together, boom, tonsil stone. If you like to throw around medical Latin, and who doesn't, they are technically called tonsiliths or tonsillolith. Lith meaning stone, as in Paleolithic, the Stone Age. Thankfully, disgusting as they are, tonsil stones aren't really what you'd call a problem. They don't tend to cause pain and only cause a small percentage of noteworthy bad breath. You might feel a little tickle in your throat, like there's something there that you can't quite clear, but that's usually it. Good oral hygiene tends to prevent them, but if you do get them, gargling with warm salt water should do the trick. Of course, if they're actively bothering you, you should talk to your GP, dentist, or ENT doctor. If your case does turn out to be serious, your doctor can use a laser to scar the crypts, called tonsocryptolysis, to make it harder for stones to form in the future. Or I guess just do like people on the internet are doing and squeeze them like spots. If you do go that route, and I hereby legally absolve myself of any responsibility for your actions, be sure to use something flexible with rounded edges, like the tip of a water pick. And watch out for that gag reflex. Got it in you for one more bodily stone? Good, because this one actually has a life outside the body. And it has a name like a movie villain patterned on the CEO of Amazon. Introducing the bezoar. A bezoar is a solid mass of indigestible material that accumulates in and can sometimes block your digestive tract. They usually form in the stomach sometimes in the small intestine and rarely in the large intestine of both children and adults. You're more likely to develop one if you have diabetes or renal disease, have decreased stomach acid production or reduced stomach emptying as a result of certain surgeries, and, especially alarming with a pulmonary plague running around, have your breathing aided by machine. If you enjoy variety, good news! There are different kinds of bezoars, depending on what they're made of. Phytobezoars, the most common type, are made up of indigestible food fibers, which is why you need to increase your water consumption if your New Year's resolution to eat healthy includes, as it should, taking in more fiber. Pharmacobezoars are clumps of medication that didn't dissolve properly in your digestive tract. Trichobezoars are often seen as a complication of certain psychiatric conditions. Trichobezoars are made of hair or other fibers that are eaten by the sufferer in what is known as Rapunzel syndrome, which is most commonly seen in adolescent girls. Bezoars can cause lack of appetite, they're probably causing that for you right now, vomiting, weight loss, gastric ulcers, intestinal bleeding, and obstruction which can lead to tissue death. Like other small stones, smaller bezoars may pass on their own, or you can take certain medications to help them dissolve. 
Large bezoars, especially trichobezoars, often require surgery. If you find that tomorrow you're not very hungry and have a bit of an upset tum-tum, it's probably not a bezoar. They're quite rare, and it's much more likely you're just still queasy from listening to this. While I couldn't find any sort of world record for largest bezoar, I did find some pretty phenomenal also-rans, like an 18-year-old girl who had a 9-pound trichobezoar or hairball removed, and one that had pictures in it. You gotta love medical journals. It was the size of a large baby. It was terrible. You definitely would not want to get that world record, as opposed for the one I'm actually trying to get. So this crazy idea flitted through my brain and I managed to catch it. I am preparing for the 150th episode. For the 100th episode, I invited 25 other podcasters to record and submit facts. For episode 150, it's going to be 50 guest segments. And I wondered, is there a record for most guest segments on a single podcast episode? There isn't presently, so I applied for one with Guinness World Records. The thing is, it takes up to 12 weeks for them to process the application, so for them to decide if this is something they are going to consider to be a viable category, and if my attempt will suffice. That's not even the judging, you know, did I actually pull it off? That comes after and can take another 12 weeks. Since I had this idea less than 12 weeks from episode 150, I'm going to need to pad the runtime, as it were. I'm going to need to put some air in the schedule because I would like to do the 50 guests on the 150th episode and have things correctly numbered. I'm a stickler that way. So in the near future, you might hear one or two more reruns, or if I get real busy with the VO stuff, and I do still, of course, have time in my schedule for my lovely listeners when they need VO work, there might be a week where I skip an episode. Just follow us on the social media, us, because I apparently have a mouse in my pocket, Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, and Twitter at Brain on Facts Pod to keep up with all the news. People have known about bezoars for centuries because they exist not only in humans, but also in animals, who we are often in the habit of disassembling. The word bezoar comes from the Persian word for antidote, and that's a strange name for an affliction, but that's because These rock-like objects were thought to be a universal cure for poison. Like many old-fashioned curatives, they addressed a wide array of conditions, from leprosy to measles to cholera to depression. Your prescription might be to add ground bezoar powder to your wine, to wear a bezoar on a chain, or just drop the whole thing into your cup to neutralize any and all poisons that a disgruntled employee or romantic rival might pour for you. Arabian doctors had been using bezoars since the 8th century and brought them into Western medicine around the 12th century as an antidote to arsenic, a favorite poison among the nobility. By the 16th century, bezoar use had become quite popular and their value went through the roof. They were at one point these clumps of bodily excretions and inedible rubbish, worth more than their weight in gold. Ten times as much, in fact. Today, that would cost over $600 per gram, which is about six times the price per gram of cocaine, which is why I looked that up, FBI man going through my browser history. 
Bezoars were most available to the rich. Queen Elizabeth I had a protective bezoar set in a silver ring. Anytime a commodity becomes that valuable, a new industry springs up. Knockoffs, counterfeits, and competition. Yes, counterfeit gut stones. In Goa, India, Jesuit priests would make their own bezoars, called Goa stones, with shells, silt, resin, and maybe some bits of actual bezoar. Goa stones could even contain crushed gemstones for their top-of-the-range product. They believed these too would counteract poison and cure the plague. So it wasn't as if they were selling a pig and a poke, which is good because the Goa stones could also be extravagantly expensive. The bezoar bubble burst in 1575, when French surgeon Ambroise Paré set out to debunk their pharmacological value. A cook in Paré's house was caught stealing silver and sentenced to be hanged. Paré saw an opportunity. He offered the cook a deal. Agree to be poisoned and immediately treated with a bezoar. If the bezoar worked, the cook would live and could go free. Want to guess how it ended? Yeah, the cook died horribly after a few hours. But Paré had the proof he needed. Bezoars aside, your digestive system does all manner of things you're not aware of. For example, did you know your stomach can blush? When you blush, you get a burst of adrenaline and your sympathetic nervous system reacts and causes blood flow to increase throughout the body. It's part of the fight-or-flight reflex. Blood vessels dilate throughout the body to help pump more oxygenated blood to your muscles. All the blood vessels dilate, including the ones in your face, which brings even more attention to that fart that you thought you could cover up with a cough in the middle of class. And it includes the blood vessels in your digestive system. Have you ever had a gut feeling or trusted your gut instinct? Were you being literal or metaphorical? Are you sure? With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Airwave Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you.
Our brain and gut are connected by an extensive network of neurons. Chemicals and hormones provide constant status updates on things like hunger, stress, contamination, imbalances, etc. This internal IT system is called the brain-gut axis. And the brain and gut are constantly conferring with and influencing one another. That's why our emotional reactions manifest as a physical sensation, like the way your stomach drops when a bad news phone call comes in, or it ties up in knots when you're stressed. The nerves in your gut, or the enteric nervous system to give it its proper name, is called the body's second brain. While our gut brain can't do math, or maths for my listeners in the home counties, like the head brain can, it's busy maintaining the constant workings of our digestive system, from appetite to arse. So the digestive system has its own brain. Why don't other organ systems? I, for one, would like more oversight on respiration personally. One reason is that the digestive system answers to more than just our brain. Your gut is the landlord to billions of microbes. It has to maintain an environment that supports the kind of tenants you want to keep while keeping the riffraff in check. One good turn deserves another, and happy microbes help us digest our food, have a strong immune system, and even set our mood. Recent research shows that our microbiota influences the body's level of the neurotransmitter serotonin, which regulates feelings of happiness. You know what else your digestive system has? Taste receptors, all the way to the end. If you've ever had a bowl of spicy vindaloo or a breakfast burrito piled high with hatched chilies, and six hours later found yourself seated upon the throne praying for death and debating the merits of a Pepto-Bismol enema, you already know what I'm talking about. Bonus fact, New Mexico, where the hatched chili is from, has an official state question, red or green, referring of course to your preference in chilies. The correct answer is Christmas, meaning both. The spiciness of food, as you probably know, comes from capsaicin, which causes our brain to register a burning sensation when it binds to the TRPV1 receptor. TRPV1 receptors don't only live in your mouth where you're expecting the burn, but all over your entire body. These receptors do respond to actual heat, so their omnipresence helps protect us from things like brushing against a hot pan on the stove. With all heat, your body attempts to cool itself back down, which is why you sweat and your face flushes when you eat spicy food. Capsaicin isn't digested completely by the stomach and intestines, meaning some of it is still there when it reaches the TRPV1 receptors in your anus. That's why ridiculously hot food hurts as bad on the way out as it did on the way in. If that fact is old news, how about one I learned not two days ago while writing this? Men have taste receptors in their testicles. I'll give you a moment. Specifically, the TR1 and TR2 receptors, which detect sour, bitter, and umami, the savory flavor found in things like anchovies and soy sauce. A responsible podcaster would point out that the taste receptors are not the same as taste buds. Taste buds are projections covered in taste receptors. 
so as to dissuade curious chaps from dipping their jubblies in a takeaway cup of soy sauce. But that approach sounds like much less fun. There was already an online trend of men trying it, some of whom claimed it works. But experts suspect it was the shock of the temperature change combined with the smell of the soy sauce. Tweeted Dr. Emma Beckett, the self-styled Miss Frizzle of food and nutrition science. Honestly, never thought I'd have to say. Trust me, I have a PhD. You can't enjoy the taste of food with your testicles. Do it if that's your jam, but please not for the taste receptor activation. For one thing, those receptors are inside the testicles, not on the outside of the scrotum. Why are they even there, you're probably asking. The taste receptors on the tongue help us determine what food is good to eat. But the taste receptors in the testicles influence the production of testosterone and sperm. There seems to be a direct connection between these receptors and fecundity. Isn't that a fabulous word? Fecundity. This was discovered after researchers blocked the receptors in mice, which were later found to be infertile. Speaking of small animals and fertility experiments, you'll want to check out the latest bonus mini-episode on the Patreon to hear about people dressing frogs and rats in tiny trousers for science. If you want to support the show but can't do so financially, sharing the show is still the best way. Be it telling a friend in a text message or, and this is terribly helpful, retweeting and sharing social media posts. And if you want to hang out with your fellow brainiacs and share cool facts and see the bizarre stuff I find online, go to yourbrainonfacts.com social to click through to the subreddit or the Facebook group. Your fellow brainiacs have also been kind enough to review the show and the book. On the podcast side of things, T-E-E-E-E-E-J wrote... I first heard Moxie's calm and lovely voice guest hosting with the guys on Hysteria 51 podcast. Her wit and knowledge wowed me enough to listen to the very same podcast again. I've been a steady listener since then. Moxie mixes wonderfully researched facts and information together in a soothing slurry that is sure to captivate. And to top it all off, if you enjoy humor delivered intelligently, this is your podcast. Thanks again, Miss Moxie, for hosting such a great podcast. And thank you, TJ. Remember, I want to read your opinion out on the show, too. If your listening app doesn't seem to offer a review function, you can always go to podchaser.com to leave a review there. It's essentially IMDB for podcasts. Now over to the book review. This is the very last book review that's been written as of this recording, and I would really like to have some more to read. But this one comes from Karen Kay, who said, I got this book as a Christmas gift. I'm an avid listener of the Wyboff podcast, and so naturally I could not wait to get this book. It's full of interesting facts and just plain cool stuff to know. If your brain is anything like mine, like an internet browser with 50 tabs open at once, you'll love the creative and well-researched content contained in this book. My only complaint... It's the facts without the voice of one Moxie Labouche, the book's author. Moxie's Wyboff podcast is all of the amazing facts coupled with her amazing voice. Do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of this book to whet your appetite. Then tune into the podcast. You won't be disappointed. And thank you so much for that, Karen. 
If you also received the book as a gift or, like me, are trying to stay off Amazon, you can also leave a review on Goodreads. Yes, I know it's also owned by Amazon, but it's the next best thing I've got. When taking pregnant women into account, the average number of skeletons per person is greater than one. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the average number of nipples is greater than two. That scene from The Wall notwithstanding. If you didn't get that, ask your parents. Or your grandparents. I don't have a lot of data on audience demographics. We're talking about extra nipples and why they're statistically rare, though not as rare as you might think. Zac Efron, Lily Allen, Mark Wahlberg, Harry Styles, Carrie Underwood, Tilda Swinton, and several people I assume are famous all have one. I wanted to work in a reference to Scaramanga from The Man with the Golden Gun, but I've already alienated everyone born before 1990. Better stick to the science. They're called supernumerary nipples, meaning more than the usual number of nipples. The first scientific notation on them came in 1878 from a German named Leichenstern, who estimated that 1 in 500 people, or 0.2% of the population, have them. It turns out he probably underestimated. A number of people have taken up the mantle of being census takers of extra nipples. One study estimated 0.6% of white infants and one6 of black infants in America have them. Another estimated 2.5% of Israeli and 5.6% of German children have them. Yet another study reported that 5% of Japanese women, but only 1.6% of Japanese men, have additional nipples. Most studies find them to be more common in men than in women, and they're more commonly on the left side than the right. Here in the States, the National Institute of Health's Office of Rare Diseases say that less than 200,000 people in the country have them. I've already known at least two people personally who have them, and I don't even get out. So that number sounds low to me. Charles Darwin wrote about the presence of surplus nipples in The Descent of Man. He speculated that extra nipples were atavisms, remnants of our evolutionary past that pop up during development. The biggest push to scientifically understand supernumerary nipples came from the mononymic researcher Kajava. In 1915, he sorted supernumerary nipples into eight categories, according to the types of tissue present, in a system that doctors and scientists still use today. Category 1 is basically a whole additional breast, or polymastia, complete with areola and breast tissue. An areola with breast tissue but no nipple is Category 3. A nipple and areola with fatty tissue instead of glandular breast tissue is Category 5. An areola with neither nipple nor breast tissue is Category 7. The most common type is Category 6, polythelia, in which an extra nipple forms but no areola or breast tissue. Where do these hundreds of thousands of Category 6 nipples come from? All human embryos start off essentially female for the first 60-ish days of development. Since grown females are going to need nipples, all fetuses get them. Around the fourth week of embryonic development, 
two strips of the ectoderm, what will eventually become skin, thickens. These strips, called mammary lines or milk lines, form a V from each armpit down to the groin. As the weeks go on, the milk lines get thicker, graduating to mammary ridges. Eventually, the ridges go away, mostly. In the XX chromosome set, some tissue remains on the chest, leaving us with mammary buds that develop into the bits and bods that fill out our sweaters, make it hard to jog, and let us fulfill our mammalian heritage by nursing live young. On the flip side, the Y chromosome will set off a series of changes, like the influx of the hormone testosterone, which stimulates the growth of the penis and testes. But the nipples will always be there as a reminder that the biggest, baddest, burliest biker dude or bodybuilder started life as a female. Take that, toxic masculinity. If our friends the milk lines don't disappear completely, you get a supernumerary nipple. Most are located below the regular nipples, but according to one estimate, one in 10 are found above the regular nipples, even up in the armpits. But along the old milk lines isn't the only place extra nipples pop up. Extra nipples outside the milk lines are called ectopic supernumerary nipples, and they are a rare segment of a rare condition. Some have theorized that ectopic supernumerary nipples are modified sweat glands, or are evidence that the mammary ridges somehow became displaced during development and wound up somewhere they weren't supposed to be. And these rogue nipples can be anywhere. The back, shoulder, arms, neck, face, the perineum, even the vulva. I'll be honest with you, I've got a mole on my abdomen that I'm having second thoughts about right now. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. About the frightening-sounding chemicals in your body. They're supposed to be there. Your body made them. Formaldehyde is produced by cells during normal metabolic processes. It gets broken down into formate, which helps make the nucleic acids adenine and guanine, half the components of your DNA. Cells make hydrogen peroxide when you get an injury to signal the body to send platelets and other healing. Acetone comes from acetoacetate, which is created when your body breaks down fat. See, not so scary after all. Remember, you can always find links to the sources and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.